Hey, welcome to Generations Church Online. My name is Kyle, and I am so glad that you have joined us today. We're going to continue our series on substance, where we're looking at the book of Colossians, specifically chapter 2. And so our teaching text for today is Colossians 2, verse 15. And it says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed, he triumphed over them by him. Will you pray with me? God, you are so good. In this moment, I just pray that we take a breath. As we just reflect on our, our week, on this moment, May we just reflect on how good you are. Thank you for being good. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Father, be with us in our, this time right now. As we are scattered around this city, scattered around uh, this country, God, unite us around Jesus right now in this moment. I praise you for how your name and your message have gone out this morning through all different live streams and messages. God, thank you for the gift of technology so that we can gather together though we are apart. Give us the capacity to hear directly from you this morning. Thank you for your love and for your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I mentioned a moment ago, we are continuing our series, Substance. The substance is the Messiah. And as we're going through Colossians chapter 2, we're looking specifically about this crucial verse found in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 2. And it says the substance is the Messiah. And so Paul is building to this point to this crucial verse. We're almost there. We're going to be there in just a few short weeks. Well, Paul's writing this letter to a new upstart church, and he wants them to know what the essentials are about living a life of faith. And so he's laid out a lengthy theological discourse, encouraging the believers to be centered on Jesus and who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1. And now he continues that as we go into Colossians chapter 2. Last week, we looked at how Jesus is to be the center. And we can't be the center of our own life. Or that wheel of life will just run us over, run us ragged, and wear us out. And so today, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, that verse 15, which I think is Really, really powerful. But here's how we're going to start today after I've given you that intro to this series, Substance, and given you kind of the backstory or the previously on in our teaching series. We're going to play a little game. And so here's what we're going to do. You English majors are going to love this right now. And those of you who uh, maybe didn't like English, this may be a challenge, but I want you to play along with us. It's going to be really, really fun. So we're looking at the series title, Substance. 
And so because substance is such a substantive word, I want you to think of the antonyms of substance. So I have 11 written down. And so I want you on maybe some scratch paper around you or just think of your head as to just kind of make a mental list. I'm going to give 30 seconds and then I'm going to say go. And then I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to think of the opposite words of substance. And then after that, I'm going to give you my list of 11. And then we're going to keep score a little bit. And then we'll have a part two to this challenge. And so think of 11 opposite words for substance. Ready, set, go. I need a little Jeopardy theme music right now going on. I hope I'm not interrupting your, your thing. A little, little Jeopardy theme, theme music going on. So we're coming up. I'm watching the clock slowly move. The pressure is on. Can you come up with 11 opposite words? The 11 that I have for substance. Got about five more seconds. Four, three, two, one. All right, we're going to keep score. So here is my list of 11. Measly. Puny, paltry, trifle, marginal, little, bitty, two separate words, pocket size, one word, inconsequential, insignificant, negligible. So how'd you do? How'd you do out of 11? Out of 11, did you get any of the words that I put on my list? Post your scores. We want to hear how you did in that little competition. But guess what? There's a part two. Each of these words are worth two points. Two points. So we're going to look for synonyms. Synonyms of the word substance. And so synonyms are words that mean about the same thing. And so for substance. So same rules. 30 seconds on the clock come up with, this time, 16 words that mean the same thing as substance. Ready, set, go. 30 seconds on the clock. Man, I hope you guys are posting your scores because I cannot wait to see how well you did. You didn't know this was going to be interactive today. The good thing is, is that it is interactive. And you're probably, as you're thinking of words right now, you probably have muted me on your TV. Please don't mute me. We've got about five more seconds on the clock. Five, four, three, two, one. All right. The words I have on my list... Synonyms for substance. Big, consequential, earth-shattering, two words, earth-shaking, one word. The earth-shattering had a little hyphen in there. Eventful, historic, important, major, material, 
meaningful, momentous, monumental, much significant, tectonic, and weighty. Weighty is the last word. So how'd you do? The second set of words, 11 in the first set, 16 in the second. Maybe you got one. So that's two points, two points. So add up your total score. Let's see if we could get it, see if we could get a, get a high score. So we got some people posting. Come on, post your score. Don't be embarrassed. If you didn't get any, that's okay. I hope maybe you even looked it up on your phone. I didn't put that in the rules. You could have looked up some of that in the, in the rules. That was fair game. So how did you do? I think some of you right now, if I were to ask you, what do you think about Jesus and what role he plays in your life? There are some of you watching right now that think that Jesus is those first set of words, paltry, puny, marginal, inconsequential. There's some of you watching this right now and listening where the words that you grasped for were like, no, it's that second set for me. Jesus is consequential. He is weighty in my life. He's significant. He's tectonic. He is a major part of who I am and what I am about. And naturally... Because of our culture and our time, with these two separate set of words, we want to know, so who's right? Who is right? And maybe if you're someone who says, well, one of these words might be true for me, but not true for someone else. I would say that you might make a fair point in this moment. But I think at the end of the day, what Jesus wants us to know is that both of these set of words are valid set of words in around substance. But at the end of the day, what Jesus wants is for both groups of people and what they think about him is to think about him as the authority. That he knows who he is best. And so to learn about who he is and what he has done, we have to look at what the Bible says about him. Because the best authority on God is God. Who he is and what he has done. And the beautiful thing is that as we look to God and what God says about God, and how he manifests himself in Jesus, then we start to get a picture of who we are in light of who God is and what we should do in response. And that makes all the difference for how we would describe who we think Jesus is. And so God wants us to know that life that his will and his way is to be ordered around him. That our identity is best found when we know who he is. And so that challenges us in a myriad of ways. 
It challenges us to, to basically reject that we can determine our own sense of identity from within. Or even determine our identity from a sense of, uh, maybe you come from a more communal culture. So your identity may be found in well, what others think about you. Or what your community determines what is right or wrong. And because your identity is linked to a community identity, that's who you identify as. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that while both of these are sources of where we can find our identity, that ultimately who we are is determined by our union with him. And that's what Paul has been building to here in Colossians chapter 2. That our union with Christ has implications and application for every aspect of our life. And so he is still describing what some of that union with Christ looks like and what that ultimately means for how we live in our world today. Because ultimately what we know is that when we find our identity and determine who we are within ourself or self-determine or from a communal sense of identity, when they're finite things, they can always be taken away. And we know that right here and right now in this cultural moment. It doesn't matter how many Netflix shows you watch, how many scrolls you do on Instagram or Facebook, how many YouTube videos you watch. When you show up to Costco tomorrow, there still won't be toilet paper. There still won't be hand sanitizer. You can't make finite things magically appear. And I think in this cultural moment, what God is doing is he's stripping away the things that we have put our identity in. Now, I joke about TP and hand sanitizer, but at the end of the day, if you've identified yourself as an athlete, there's no athletes. No one's playing athletics right now. If you've identified yourself in some other way and in a finite reality, you know, and the fear is real, that that person, that loved one can be taken away because of this virus. And so we have to find our sense of identity in something that transcends the finite, in something that is infinite. And not just a thought or an idea or a level of kind of cultural feel for the age. We have to find our sense of who we are and what we do in response to that in something that's substantive, something that's weighty. Something that's earth-shattering and earth-shaking. Something that's big and mighty and strong. And when it moves and when it acts, we know it. And it's something like a good stake we can sink our teeth into. And so that's who Jesus is. And what Paul is talking about is he's tried to really prove that point here in Colossians 2. And the, the thing that he says about Colossians 2, specifically in verse 15, 
is it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. See, we've been culturally conditioned to place ourselves in the center. And what Paul says is that we are not the center. God is the center. He is the source of power and might. And that means a whole lot for our, every aspect of life. And if as we look at this verse, it says that God disarmed and disgraced some rulers and powers and authorities. And that may seem kind of weird. And what is Paul referring to? Well, if you go back into Colossians chapter 1, what Paul is referring to is you have these physical authorities, realities of our life. But there's also spiritual reality and authority. And what's been, it's such a challenge in our day and ages because as we talk about spiritual realities in our life, we almost don't think about them at all. It's almost something that's like an afterthought. We know that there are, there are authorities, there's a level of government, there, is a, there's, there are people who when they say something, it has practical implications for the way in which we live our life. But we give little thought to the spiritual realities of life. And just even the thought of talking about something spiritual, what that might actually do for you is you might think of like Star Wars or some, like some outer space sci-fi movie. You're like, yeah, that might be something that's talked about, but it's kind of like science fiction. It's not something that really is actually real, that has any substance to it. But what Paul is saying here is that there are spiritual powers at work in earthly structures. And God specifically exposes evil boldly. There are evil forces at work within our world. And within certain structures and in certain systems, people who act evil, bring to bear these, these evil structures and systems within our world. But there's also evil spiritual reality that is at work to deceive us, to lead us into such a way that takes away a level of human flourishing that God originally designed and desires for us. And so we have to awaken ourselves to what I'm just going to call, and the philosopher Charles Taylor calls, the buffered self. Often how we think about ourselves is like a castle with a moat. Even in today's day and age with this social distancing, we think of ourselves as a castle with a moat, with a drawbridge, that the only thing, we only let certain things in when we want. We can lower and raise that drawbridge as often as we want, but we are fortified, we are walled, nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out. We are protected, we are fortified against anything external. But here's the thing. We are, in fact, vulnerable. And that's why this fear and level of frenzy that's out there that we don't want to think about, that we want to distract ourselves from, that we want to kind of buck the system against and pretend like it's not real or it's not a spiritual reality just in our day and moment. What we have to realize is 
there are things that can get in and get over the walls and get inside of us. Our walls aren't as fortified as we would like to think. And we see ourselves as a structure of power, if only in our little kingdoms of online or in our homes. And this type of thinking has been passed from generation to generation. And what we want passed from generation to generation is the name of Jesus and what he has done. And how he interacts with ourselves, our souls, and our life. And I think the climax of this fortification mentality is pretty prevalent, actually, in the news. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there, were, uh, there was just an interviewer going around to spring break. Right now, Generation Z, or at least in the last couple weeks, have been going on spring break. In light of this virus, everything's shut down, but you have kids. And again, I'm not bashing uh, this generation or anything like that, Gen Z. What I'm simply trying to say is that this moment of thinking hit its climax and becomes most apparent when you have a group of kids with a very real threat of a virus think, I'm invincible. This can't get me. It's not going to hinder my life. And it has no real effect or sway. And so that's how this line of thinking, this fortification mentality comes to reality within our life. That we can't physically overcome it. And I just think that oftentimes we forget about the spiritual reality within our world and at play. And I think, actually, we, this is where the body of Christ can be oh so beautiful. Because speaking out of my posture and what I'm trying to present here right now in the most humble and honest way I can, I think about the, the spiritual realities at work in our world, how we have tried to isolate and insulate ourselves from them, we actually can learn something of how to deal with this and how to be resilient and how to cope and what communal life looks like in our individualistic, isolated, castle-type worlds is we can learn something from our African-American brothers and sisters of faith. We can learn something from our Latino brothers and sisters of faith and how they care and support and really in the times of adversity, pull together and put family, oftentimes above all. And in this moment, it's a beautiful opportunity for the church. When we're tempted to build castles with higher walls, to build in a moat that's extended even further, to simply remember that God has disarmed the authorities and powers of this age and of this world. And therefore, the family of God can come together in unique and creative ways to be a tangible difference in our world. And we need that because we know we can't do this on our own. Especially as things continue, we're going to have to figure out how much TP do we have? How many Clorox wipes do we have? How much food do we have? And this is an opportunity for the church to unite 
together to be one around Jesus. That the temptation and the fear that says, no, stock up for yourself. No, the church takes a posture of generosity. That in a, a world that says hoard, we say give and love. Be for each other. Be family. And some of you are experiencing that right now. If you've had someone who's gone and got groceries for you, if you've had someone reach out, send you a text, make a phone call, the world needs to hear those stories. And that the reason that we do that is because of Jesus. So the spirit of the age holds no power over us because Jesus has triumphed. It means we don't result to rebellion, that we don't give in to fear. And the results of when we rebel against the spirit of the age and we give in to fear, we'll ultimately do is we deconstruct the world in which we know it, and ultimately we make ourselves the center of authority. And we don't place Jesus rightfully where he belongs in our life, which is on the throne, which is at the seat of authority that exposes evil and demonstrates what true love looks like in our world today, in this cultural moment. And our heroes, let, let, me, let me say it this way. So when, we make, when we make ourselves the center of authority, the center of power, we don't know how to cope with that pressure. And eventually we come to resent it. Think of it this way. In an age of Marvel movies and superheroes, at some point what we're starting to see is more of a theme of the anti-hero. The hero who is supposed to be a hero but doesn't have the moral quality is a little more selfish. And the reason that story is getting told more and more is because we want to deconstruct. We want to eliminate because we don't know how to cope that there might actually be with someone who is right and good that we can aspire to be like. There is actually a good hero to the story. And so our cynical selves creep in, our lust for power, our desire for control basically says when we can't handle the pressure, when we don't know how to cope, well, let's just tear it all down. And when we result to tearing it all down, we get stories like the anti-hero that come up. We get a fear in horror movies of a biological weapon that we don't have the resources to contain or control, and then we all end up as zombies. Because we don't know how to cope with the reality that there might be something outside of us that can both harm us, but also provide hope and provide meaning and that there's something that can actually be good and bring transformation. That there is a hero that we can look to and become more like. Not because we are good, but because he is good. And that hero is Jesus. It says that he triumphed over evil by him. 
And our present day and age is doing everything to try to convince us that we can conquer these external realities, these spiritual forces, these thoughts of the age by might, with our own ingenuity, with mastery, which is the manifestation of our desires for power and control. But we don't have to deconstruct because the powers have already been disarmed. So we must not look to the anti-hero. We must look to the hero, the one who has triumphed through an upside-down way by not doing everything with his might, but by living with a right, the rightful king of the universe who did not see his kingship as something to be grasped, to control, to aspire to, but something that was simply his given to him by the Father and lived and loved and gave up his life for us. And that's how he triumphed. See, the parade of celebration, the parade of triumph was not in the Roman Forum. It's not in the Colosseum with fans screaming, cheering on with praise. No. The parade of triumph for Jesus was the cross. And it was through selfless love on the cross that Jesus disarmed the powers and rulers of his age and our age. See, that's what disarms this culture of fear. That's what disarms this perpetual uh, frenzy that we may feel ourselves in. This is what disarms our desire to cope and recluse and build castles of isolation. Is the hero who lives his life out of selfless love and laid down his life for us. And we can take our posture from him. And Jesus gives, the, gives us the capacity to love when we are united with him. And so my plea for you today is to be united with Jesus. If you're watching this and you feel like Jesus is paltry, that he is marginal, something on the side, my encouragement to you is that find out for yourself that Jesus is significant, that he is weighty because the way of love is honestly, is difficult. It's not easy. It's countercultural. We talk about love in a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, real love is displayed in Jesus. And that is selfless and that is caring as thinking about others above ourself. And so the Christian worldview in light of that today says that maybe we choose to stay home not because of fear, but because of love. And in a time of adversity, the substance surfaces when the fluff reduces. See, at the end of the day, when everything is stripped away, 
the substance that we have actually built our life around rises to the surface. It rises to the surface. And if that's something that can be taken away, then we realize what we've actually built our life on is not something that is eternal, not something that has actual substance, but something that is flimsy, that is finite. And I, I think about this uh, in a couple different ways. The first way is simply this. I go back to making maple syrup with my family at the start of the year. I didn't get to do it this year with living out in Washington. But what I love about making maple syrup is as you go to the trees, you, you, get, you get some buckets, and you just keep boiling that sugar water down. And the impurities and stuff, they rise up and you scoop them out. But you've got to keep putting sugar water in to boil it down, to reduce it. And you've got to keep doing that and keep doing that, keep doing it. So we have to be filled up with Jesus. We have to go back to the Bible and understand that that's what will help sustain us. And ultimately, I always think the sweetest maple syrup is when you've put a lot of sugar water into it and just watched it reduce, reduce, reduce. And you get the impurities and stuff cast aside. And you can even throw some hot dogs or some boiled eggs in there and get some really sweet food out of it. But at the end of the day, the substance surfaces. It's sticky. It's, it's not like the water when you first put it in where it just looks like water. But then when you put your spoon in after a while and you lift it up and you can just see it drip little by little. It's thicker. It's not as runny. And substance comes to the forefront. And so staying home in our day and age doesn't mean that love is canceled. Staying home doesn't mean we're giving in to fear. When the comforts of life are removed, what rises to the surface is whatever our life is actually built on. And so in this moment, we want to make sure that what rises to the surface is Jesus. That he has triumphed over the spiritual rulers and authorities of this age that want to take us away from a way of love of a, a level of authority in this world that wants to remove us from community and isolate us, not for the, the sake of others, but for the sake of power. And so what we have to do is be respectful, abide, and be good citizens. Care for others that meet needs and allow us to love while still maintaining a level of care for those who might be at risk. So we choose things like staying home. We, we choose things like buying groceries for another and leaving it on the porch and leaving because that might be the way of love. So what it means is instead of analyzing and deconstructing, we must respond to the good news of Jesus, that he has de deconstructed the powers of the world. And we have to do that by constructing a life with him. So let's not let the spirit of this age divide us. Let's be a church that embodies love. And so to do that well, I just want to give you a couple practical tools 
that we as a church are going to lead out on. And that what I would like you to do, even if you're a believer who lives here in Salmon Creek, Washington, or in Hazeldale, or in Vancouver, if you're someone, that, then by all means, we want you to do this. But this is stuff that you can do no matter where you live because we want to embody a love that says the spiritual rulers and authorities within this world of evil have been disgraced, hold no power and no sway over us. And so very practically, you've been looking at this chalkboard over here for a while. And so this is what I want you to think about, is if this is where you live, this is your house. You have eight people likely who live around you. Three in the front, probably two on the side, and maybe three behind you. This week, we're going to send out a letter called the Neighbor Letter. And maybe you've already seen it on some of our social media stuff. We would love for you to drop this letter off after you've washed your hands at your neighbors. That simply says, we're here to help. We're not scared. We're going to practice good social distancing. But while we may be physically distancing from other people, we will not actually social distance from you. And we're going to do that by dropping off a letter that communicates our love and our care, and we recognize it. So hopefully you've got some people that live around you. If you live in an apartment complex, the people that live above you and beside you. If you live a little further out in the country, well, maybe you only have three or four neighbors. Don't make an excuse to not step out in love and live in such a way that you let fear win or the unknown win or the awkwardness win. Because that's evil. A fear of that is flat, flat out evil. Let love win. Be selfless. And lastly, it's kind of a two-part initiative. Simply this. We care about the well-being of our area. And so we are making sure that we are present in our community in two ways. And it's kind of a, a two-pronged initiative. The first as we are launching what we're calling local business buyout, which means every single week we're going to highlight at least one business that we want you to go get takeout from, to go, to go get, uh, to, to have delivered to your house so that we can invest in the economic well-being of our community in this time. That we can say, hey, we, we know if we have the capacity for money, we can invest in the local economy. And so we're going to highlight that. We're going to push that out. And actually, if you've got a business that you think we should highlight, there's an ability for you to submit that business on our website. You can go there right now and start submitting a business that, that you would like us to highlight and support and say, hey, go here these two or three hours, get takeout, have them delivered on this day so we can support them. The second prong is not just the economic well-being, but the mental and social well-being of our community. And so we're going to do something called Egg My House. Egg My House. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to have eggs getting thrown at my house. No. We want to, because Easter is coming up, we want to take Easter to you. So in a clean and sanitary way, 
We want to drop off Easter baskets for you guys to have many Easter egg hunts in your homes. And so maybe you've got friends who who they can't get out. They've got kids, and they're like, man, I can't get out to get candy or Easter eggs, and I don't know what to do. I don't have any Easter you can You can request that we do that at their house. All the rules are provided, and, and the information is on our website. The idea behind both of these initiatives and the neighbor letter is to say, again, in this time of social distancing, we won't actually be socially distant. We may be physically distant, six feet apart. But we will care for the well-being of our community, both in and around Generation Church and also within and around Salmon Creek. So at the end of the day, when people ask, why are we doing this? What is your reasoning? We can simply say, because of Jesus, for generations to come. And it's that name and that reason that we will care for our community in this time of fear. Because when everything's stripped away, substance rises to the surface. Will you pray with me? Father, you are good. Don't allow us to give into fear. Don't allow us to be frenzied. Don't allow us to recluse into our towers of isolation. Give us the capacity and the desire for love in this time, in this day and age. Give us the motivation to not just simply be good people or not be nice people or not just simply be good neighbors. Give us the motivation instill within us the drive to live in such a way that we point back to you. Thank you for that promise that you have already disarmed and disgraced the spiritual powers and authorities in this world. And you are the source of authority and you sit on the throne. It's in that mighty name of King Jesus, I pray. Amen.